0: Welcome to the Life After Life podcast, where we explore our soul's physical and non-physical journey. I'm Majana. Let's discuss angels, guides, and loved ones from the other side. Hello and welcome back. Oh, I am so excited to share this episode with you. So you know how the veil is thinning, right? And more and more people are getting the opportunity, expected or not, to communicate with loved ones on the other side. That is exactly what happened to a special guest that we have on the show today. Thomas joined me in interviewing Stephen Simon. So Stephen and his wife wrote a book, What Dreams Have Come, Loving Through the Veil. Together, here's the twist. Lauren is on the other side of the veil. Interesting, right? But before we launch into this interview, let me tell you a little bit about Stephen. He has produced Academy Award-winning What Dreams May Come, starring Robin Williams and Cuba Gooding Jr., Somewhere in Time with Christopher Reeve and Jane Seymour, and All the Right Moves with Tom Cruise. He was also co-executive producer on Bill & Ted's Excellent Adventure and Bill & Ted's Bogus Journey with Keanu Reeves. He produced the very first original film that premiered on the internet called Quantum Project. And his lists go on and on and on. But especially of interest to us in this topic is that he directed and produced Indigo and the film version of Conversations with God, starring his very close personal friend, Neil Donald Walsh. Stephen, thank you so much for joining Thomas and I today. This is such a pleasure.
1: Yeah, it's a great fun for me, too. Thank you both.
0: So I read your book last night and... I don't know how anybody could read it over a span of more than a couple hours because don't make me put it down. It was terrific.
1: (laughs) Thank you. Well, you know, I think it was something that we very much wanted to make sure that it was something you could do in one sitting. It's not something that we felt that we needed to expand. We kind of said what we wanted to say. So thank you for saying that. And thank you for reading the book.
0: Oh, my pleasure. Absolutely. Well, I'm sure that There are just a million questions. So one of the things, actually a couple of things that really, really caught my attention and I appreciated so much were points that you made that I've made numerous times on this podcast. One of which I appreciated so greatly being that we as humans are not meant to, nor can we even begin to understand all the complexities and possibilities of the universe.
1: Yeah, I totally believe that. I think that there is no way that we can. Our, our humanity is designed in such a way that when we're human, if we're lucky, we can grok something about what it's like to be human. Um, but when we're human, we can't grok what it's like on the other side. First of all, there may be maybe billions of variations on the other side. What if every single person's belief is reflected in their afterlife experience? It it goes on forever. It's one of the things that we were very clear about when we made What Dreams May Come, which is that you create your own reality. Well, that may also be true afterlife. And one of the fascinating things about our communication with Lauren, and I guess I should go back and talk to your listeners a bit about what this is all about and how this happened. So in my life, my professional life, most of my life, I have been a film producer, and I produced Somewhere in Time with Christopher Reeve and Jane Seymour and What Dreams May Come with Robin Williams. And what are those two films about? Those two films are about a man in this case, could could easily have been a woman, but in this case a man who is searching for his soulmate on the other side of the veil. That is the case with somewhere in time where they are so, so far apart that by the time they re they meet, she is about to die and he has to find a way to bridge that gap. And then they're together at the end. The same thing about what dreams may come that he needs to go searching for his soulmate after she has already gone to the other side of the veil. So, this has been the focus of my professional life and then on january 3rd of 2018 i came home from an early morning workout at the gym to find that my soulmate lauren who was only at that time 54 had died suddenly in her sleep needless to say it totally wrecked me and uh, i don't remember a lot about the first year and a half but what i do remember is that Lauren and I had spoken about this possibility many times, many times. Lauren, when uh, she was human, was an extraordinary intuitive. And Lauren, I know, knew something was coming. She did, she absolutely knew that there was something coming. She didn't know exactly when, she didn't know exactly what, but she had said to me one night, honey, we need to design our afterlife experience together. And I want to be very specific about it. And please write everything down, which I did. We had plans for this. And honestly, because I was 17 years older than Lauren, we thought it would have initially be me, but it wasn't, it was Lauren. And I spent the first several weeks desperately trying to be in some kind of communication with her and had no success whatsoever. Six weeks later and uh, we describe it in the book, how it happened. Lauren made contact with me in such a very specific way that I knew that it was her. And I get these questions a lot from people. How do you know? The answer is your brain doesn't, but your heart does. And this is a very difficult concept, I think, for a lot of people because, you know, our brains are computers and they sometimes get information incorrect. They don't really understand the humanity that we're dealing with. Computers don't completely understand that. But your heart knows. And if you're in touch with someone who is deeply embedded in your heart, now in our case, it's soulmates, Intertwined souls. It can be mother and father. It can be daughters, sons, grandparents. Since we put the book out, I've gotten so many emails from people because I've asked for them about their own experiences. So Lauren and I began these dialogues between the two of us, and it was very personal. And I was journaling just to get myself really through the grief. And it was so comforting for me. Mm-hmm to have her be there with me. Um, we explain in the book together how, how this actually came about and how we actually started to write the book together. It took us about a year and a half to actually write the book. And then it took me about six months to find the right book cover to do all the things that we wanted to do with it. And the bottom line of why we wrote this book, is because we know that millions and millions and millions of people every day have these experiences where they have communication beyond the veil. We're not unique in that. This happens all the time. What happens, unfortunately, with a lot of people, however, is that they're afraid to talk about it, even with loved ones, because they're afraid that people will think they're crazy. Well, I stopped giving up any fear of people were thinking I was crazy back in the seventies because I've always wanted to do things in a somewhat different way. And I understand that I don't care if people think I'm crazy. I know I'm not. And what we wanted to do is we really wanted to give people who have these experiences, the encouragement and the inspiration that you're not crazy. You're not imagining it. Yes, we have these communications, and they can be incredibly comforting to us. So anyway, that's how the book came about.
0: Very, very interesting. So when you talked about Lauren coming to you the very first time, can you tell us, so yeah, uh, you said you thought maybe you were crazy, but how did that, how did that feel to you? You knew it with your heart, but what was the audible piece of that?
1: Everything froze. Everything froze. Everything froze in time. Um, There was a moment in which she just said, she said something to me. And again, it's specifically in the book. And I was like, what really? And she wanted me to watch something in particular, which I did. And uh, there was a song in it that was a very meaningful song for us. And it was a message from her that sweetie, I'm here. I'll be here. I'm always going to be with you now and we will be together when you cross over, but you still have work to do and I'm going to be here with you while you do it. Now, did I hear her voice? Absolutely not. I did not. I couldn't because her body was gone and her voice emanates from her body. So there was no way that I could actually hear her voice. I felt it in my heart and It's a very, for people who have not been through it, it's a very hard thing to explain because I do hear her words, but not with my brain and not with my ears. I hear with my heart. And you notice in writing and in reading the book, we talk a lot about listen to your heart, trust your heart. Uh, There's a wonderful quote from a movie, and it's the start of one of the chapters from a movie called Bandits. Um, there's a line in it that the heart is a mysterious organ. It plays by its own rules and it does. And it plays by its own rules that the head does not understand in any way. It's a completely different communication system. And there were things that Lauren said, (laughs) her humor um, we spent a lot of our marriage, uh, making fun of me, both of us did. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> Lauren has a very unique way of doing that in a very loving, kind way. And that just, that started these hours and hours and hours and hours of communications. And eventually I had like, I don't know, I don't remember now, seven or eight full of legal yellow pads of notes. And then something happened uh, at dinner one night with dear friends of ours, Neil Donald Walsh, who wrote the conversations with God books where it became very clear that we needed to write this book. And she still talks to me every day. We communicate every day. And it's the only thing that is helping me get through the grief of not being with her physically right now. Um, It's, it's, For everybody that goes through this, it's a really, really rough road. And ours has been no rougher than most. I'm not saying we're special in any way, because we're not. But her being with me has given me a reason to go on. And uh, I cherish every minute.
0: That is beautiful. Prior to these conversations with Lauren, had either of you had conversations with anyone on the other side of the veil?
1: Well, I I know that Lauren did. I know that Lauren did. Um, I'm going to leave it at that because those are specifics that she never talked about publicly. So I'm not going to go into that. I don't believe I had more than one or two. But I did have one that I specifically remember because I was directing my first film, a little film called Indigo that we made in Ashland, Oregon. And um, I have to say I was not a very good director. That is not my thing. I found that out after doing two movies and producing really wound up being my career. But there was a moment in which I had to get something done. We were losing the light. It was a, it was a low budget film and I had to get a scene between, among four or five people and I didn't know how to do it. My father, my birth father, was a producer and a director in the 40s. Uh, He made movies with Abbott and Costello and and, uh, the Marx Brothers, and he had an extraordinary directing career, and he died right before my fifth birthday. And somehow or another, I just walked away from this. I said to the assistant director, I need a minute. I walked away, and I just said, Dad, I need a shot. And I heard him, I felt him in my heart say, do a 360. Uh, which means get a steady cam and just keep it in the center of the people as they're talking and keep turning the camera, which I never would have thought of because I wasn't experienced enough director. That's the only time that I remember having that specifically until these things started with Lauren.
0: Nice. So being open to it absolutely was a, a key element, correct?
1: Oh, my goodness, yes. It, that's a big, I'm, I'm really glad you brought that up because that is, a huge part of this is that you need to trust it and it took me quite a while before I totally trusted that I was not just making this up to make myself feel better. And I doubted it. You know, I doubted it a lot the the day that it really stopped was <laughs> I said to Lauren,
0: <laughs>
1: you know, I have to tell you, sometimes I I just, I still think I'm making this up. And she said to me, well, sometimes I think I'm making you up. (laughs) (laughs) And I laughed and that was the end of that.
0: Nice. Yeah. That's one of my suggestions when I'm talking with people is we naturally doubt it. So what if, instead of always saying, no, that can't be, that's my imagination. What if you just assume it is a communication? Just hold that space repeatedly and give it space to grow. And it's amazing what unfolds.
1: It is amazing. It's an extraordinary thing. And I think as we evolve now, as human beings, as our spirituality evolves, I think that veil has become less impenetrable because our beliefs are changing. But you have to believe it. If you don't believe it, then you can't trust it. And that's what your heart is. Don't, don't go through a checklist in your mind cause you'll never get there. It's really trusting your heart. And for people who are heart motivated, and that has always been certainly my life. And, and when Lauren was physical, certainly her life, we were really led by our hearts. And if you can trust your heart, then you can trust that communication
0: definitely. I love that. So you and Lauren, prior to her transitioning, mapped out what you would like your afterlife to be.
1: Correct. Very, 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 very specifically.
0: Nice. So how much of that affects your communication with her now? Is there overlap?
1: Uh, You know, I'm not sure it does a lot. Um, You know, that is going to be something every once in a while um, I get a little glimpse Lauren gives me a little glimpse but only so much as my mind can can really take as a human being. I think I don't think we could actually deal with being able to really understand what the other the other side is really like um except for us because your experience in the afterlife and my experience and Thomas's can be extremely different. Right. So I think it becomes a very very personal experience.
0: I also love the way she makes reference to previous lifetimes and the physicality that she took on at those times. Like, maybe you wouldn't (laughs) want to see me then.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there was one moment in which I was like, you know, honey, I feel terrible. I'm a mess. I look like shit. And she said, well, I don't. I look great. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so yeah, she did have uh, we, we, we have had a lot of fun and all of that is in the book uh, for people who are listening to this. When L- Lauren speaks in the book, it's in an entirely different typeset so that uh, people really can see it as a conversation um, between two beings, one human being and one being on the other side. And uh, it, the, the humor is important. The humor is very, very important.
0: And humor is high vibration and great energy.
1: Great energy, yes, great energy. Wow. I agree.
2: Was there any communication why she left the physical first?
1: Yes. Oh my goodness, yes. Um, that was that was one of the more has been one of the more fascinating experiences about this because. Um. Lauren and I, when she was physical, were, we spent 24 seven together. She was a, um, a therapist for a very long time, did a lot of work with young women with eating disorders. Um, after a while, she really just wanted to focus on our family and she didn't do that anymore. But she did work in the house and my office was in the house. So we were together literally 24 seven. And we knew everything about each other. We knew every, every single thing that you could know about a human being. We did Uh, again, not unique. This happens to billions of people all the time who really are um, soulmates and who are really deeply in love and really connect with each other. But she knew when I was in, something was going on with me. I knew when something was going on with her. So There was a moment when I got home from the gym. I kind of gave the short story of this where I went up and checked on her. It was about eight o'clock in the morning. Lauren was usually up before eight. I kind of looked in the bedroom and I knew that she had spent the night before. She was up much later than me watching television. She had come to bed later. And I thought, okay, well, she's just sleeping and I'm going to let her sleep. She never does this. And I got busy in my office downstairs until about 10 o'clock, and then I got very worried, and that's when I went up and found her. And it's one of the things that tortured me from day one, from second one. Why the hell did I not get up there sooner? Why did I not connect with her? I had no inkling that anything was going on with her that was amiss, none whatsoever. It never occurred to me. It was completely gone from my consciousness. And it was one of the conversations that we had. And she said to me, sweetie, you really need to." And and these, I'm paraphrasing now, but she said, you need to, to stop that. The reason you didn't come up is because that was my time. That's what you and I and our souls planned. I needed to depart on January 3rd, 2018, for everything to unfold, the way we had planned it, the way we had done between lives, Lauren and I have been together a whole lot of different times over a very, very long period of time. Not every lifetime, but we spent a lot of lifetimes together, and this is how she explained it to me. If you had come up, if you had saved me, and a, a very dear friend of mine who, who is a, a world-famous medium, uh, said to me, um, at one point, if you had saved her, Stephen, she would have been on machines for the rest of her life. And that's not something that you would have wanted or that she would have wanted. And Lauren said to me, honey, this just could not have happened what we're doing now and bringing this book out and what the progression of our lives has been. If you had been there to save me, and finally it took me a long time to accept that, but finally I did, and it was very comforting.
2: you know I was um present when my mother transitioned, but not when my dad did, and I was a lot closer to my dad and It took me quite a while to wrestle through being okay with he wanted a private back door. he didn't uh, want everybody around,
1: oh no, that's a wonderful way to put it
2: he chose a time when uh, my brother and his wife were there but they were both down the hall and he just slipped out you know so it really is i mean i i, I don't understand that fully but what an amazing thing and this, we can't yeah. we can't understand it thomas right. it's not it isn't we're human we we're not supposed to right right we're not supposed to on that same theme and then i'll let majana jump back in here i don't want to take too much of this but what have you learned? You mentioned the lives between the lives, what you planned in between incarnations. What have you learned about that period? <laughs> well, it, it's, it's probably
1: um, people who have talked to me about the book have said to me, a lot of them have picked out this as one of their favorite moments in the book as an answer to that. So um, a spiritual teacher uh, of mine once Described what we do between lives when we decide we're coming back for another one. And he said So imagine you're in an afterlife running track. You're outside, and there's a a track. And you go and you very carefully set up the hurdles and obstacles that you and your soul feel you need to address in your next incarnation and you're very careful about how you set these things up all around the track, which represents your life. Then you're born and you forget all of that and you start your life and you spend a lot of your life being really pissed off at the idiot who set up the hurdles so close and, and so high because you forget that it was you. (laughs) So what happened with us is this is, we realized, I realized, and Lauren was on the other side and had already, I realized this was something that we had planned for a very, very long time. And the way that Lauren and I met, which is uh, illustrative of that saying that when two people are destined to meet, there is no power in the universe that can keep them apart. And we met in the lobby of a movie theater and when she turned to look at me and I looked at her literally, and I know this is corny, but it's true. Literally time froze and we both laughed and talked about it later that we just got lost in each other's eyes and we realized two things. One, we were looking in a mirror and number two, there was this sense of, Oh my goodness, we did it we met on the night we were supposed to meet because there was no way that she would have gotten to the city that it was in that I would have gotten. We'd neither one of us had ever been there before. Neither one of us have ever been there since there were a lot of things that kept me away from that, that night that I actually really didn't want to go. She actually turned around twice in her car from going there cause she decided, no, I don't really want to do this. And she felt compelled to go. So, that moment, we kind of knew, okay, this is what we had planned. And then a lot of things became more clear. And we get into a, a, there are some aspects of the book, Majana, which you know, um, having read it last night, that deal with the questions about what is real and what is not real. And we we don't spend a lot of time in the book uh, going through that, but there's a lot of this is the best way to put it, and this is what we said in the book: "Is reality an illusion? Is reality an illusion? If you Google that for question, you get ninety-five million responses. Ninety-five million—that's extraordinary. It yeah, means that is." Oh. People are fascinated by this, which is is what we're living now: real life, or is this an illusion? Is the quote real life on the other side of the veil? And popular culture, when we go through these moments, often reflects that. What were the Matrix movies about? That were such gigantic successes. It's like, yeah, the life you're living isn't real. You know, if you take the red pill and you go down the (laughs) rabbit hole, that's when you're going to find out what's real and what's not real. And I find that completely fascinating, uh, utterly fascinating about, well, maybe this is all maybe we are avatars. As we are human of our real selves on the other side, again, nothing we can know now. Nothing we can know now, nor should we. But just marinating in the question is fascinating.
0: It is fascinating. There's so many postulations out there, right? Was it u- parallel universes, alternate universes? Un- sorry, alternate. <laughs> and it's all time happening right now. Is it just synchronicity? And there's only one period of time. So there's so many rabbits. Well, that's, rabbit a, that's Einstein. Yeah,
1: that's Einstein. I mean, you know, that that is all time is. And I realize that we've done this for a while and I haven't mentioned my book. So for people wonder what the heck we're talking about. The book is called What Dreams Have Come Loving Through the Veil. Uh, People can find out about it by going to what dreams have come dot com. And it's available, you can also get it on, on, on uh, Amazon. It's available exclusively, actually, in Amazon and Kindle and both paperbacks. So it's What Dreams Have Come.
0: And your friend helped you with that name. That's cool too. He
1: sure did. <laughs> he sure did. And I, there's an incredible story around that, but I'm going to leave that for people to read in the book because it's, I think that's a, a much better story read than told.
0: Love it. Well, in your afterword, Oh, I just want to read this because I think this is so spot on right now. As we evolve as a species, we hear certain key moments in that evolution when old ways are discarded and new maps of behavior are forged. I think that is exactly where we are right now. So, one thing that just struck me with the timing and all the lifetimes that you and Lauren have shared and the timing of her transitioning, y'all writing this book and sharing it is just so in line with what's going and what we think of as the veil is thinning, and more people are having access to conversations and loved ones on the other side. And you just are showing so beautifully that love is the key for that. It's high energy, and that's what gets us that connection.
1: I couldn't agree more. Uh, it is, and you know we. We, we knew that in our hearts before Lauren had even transitioned. As I said, we spoke about this together a lot. I mean, certainly as a part of m- my work, um, and certainly as an intuitive, uh, it was part of her work, but we, we knew that we were at a place in our human existence when the, the old ways were breaking down. And as I've said before, often popular culture, uh, for me, it's movies, Uh, because that's been my focus, really often reflects that. And the fact that we had the sense after Lauren went through, when she said to me, and there's a whole chapter on this about, honey, this is how we designed it. We had the opportunity to do it. We made the plan. And for people who haven't seen it, there is a movie called The Adjustment Bureau, which is unfortunately one of the most... um, (laughs) unfortunately titled incredible movies that if you haven't seen, I recommend it to everybody um, because it's an extraordinary love story among two people who are meant to be together, but are being kept apart by what we might call angels because of the lives that the angels believe they are supposed to live but the two of them decide, no, we're going to be together. It's our plan, and this is what we're going to do. Uh, it's a wonderful love story. I really highly recommend it to everybody. And again, it is about that issue because I think
2: that's what film reflects for us. I'd like to throw in a question here about Steven Simon. How did you? Oh, that guy. <laughs> yeah, that guy. <laughs> How did you go from movie producer to being in this space, you know, that we would call new age or being in the metaphysical arena? You know, um, I was always,
1: first of all, my father was a filmmaker. My father died when I was young. My mother married another film producer. So I was born into really old Hollywood. I knew that I was going to be involved in the film industry at some point or another. I, in 1975 walked into a bookstore and, um, one of the clerks in the, in the bookstore knew the kind of books I liked and said, Oh, you have to get this book. It just came in. You're going to love this book. And the book was called bid time return. It was written by Richard Matheson, who I knew was a dean of this kind of literature. You know, he had written uh, the Incredible Shrinking Man and and um, a, a number of the uh, the Last Man Alive and a whole a bunch of other things. He'd written a bunch of Twilight Zone episodes. And I took the book home. I read it in one night, and I said, Okay, now I got to get in the film business because this is what I came here to do. And Bid Time Return eventually became somewhere in time, which was the first film that I produced. And I I was really literally led into doing that. The films that I had grown up loving were films like Lost Horizon and It's a Wonderful Life and The Ghost and Mrs. Muir, films that had that kind of wonderful, magical quality to them. And I knew that, that that's what I needed to do. So we made Somewhere in Time. Richard had written the book of What Dreams May Come, and it took me 20 years to get that made. And then we had a business for many years called the Spiritual Cinema Circle, where we sent out movies to, that were very inspirational to our subscribers. That business was from, we started in t- 2004 and just closed it this year. So this has been the the professional impetus of my of my life, which is to do things in this genre, whatever we might call it, that hopefully will inspire people and lift people up and, and, and realize that there is, there is so much beauty around us. Even in the ugliest times, there's so much beauty around us and when we can connect into that and connect to who we really might be as human beings, it's so inspiring. I, I think it, it, it can lift you from one place into another.
2: What are your thoughts on the state of the industry now, especially after the full impact of COVID-19? Well, um, I wrote a book um, about 10 years ago called Bringing Back the
1: Old Hollywood, because I grew up in the old Hollywood. My family was very much a part of that world. I grew up around it. The old Hollywood was full of magic magic. And uh, the people who owned the studios and ran the studios were all passionate filmmakers who loved movies and loved movie people in our heyday, which was 1939 when like 700 films were made, including the wizard of Oz, we were making movies for all audience segments and things like that. And then when television came in, it began to change the face of the industry and as we have gone through time, the movie business has changed rather extraordinarily for a lot of different, a lot of different reasons. It became much more star oriented. The stars used to be under contract to studios and were basically told, well, you're doing this, you're doing this. That didn't last forever. They, they became autonomous. They made the decisions on what was going to happen. All of the studios now are owned by big corporate entities, the idea of taking emotional risks in films has become uh, more and more rare. The finances of the film industry have not worked for a long time because of a lot of different things, the cost of marketing, the incredible amount of entertainment options that particularly young people have now. Um, it, It has changed a lot. And it, the industry was not healthy, before COVID hit COVID now has basically shut down theaters. As you know, the movie industry is going to have an 80 to 90% decrease in revenue this year from 2019, which is disastrous. And there is a lot of questions as to how they're going to get people to go back into movie theaters. And I'm not sure that it will. I'm not sure that it will. I'm not sure, that people will go back to movie theaters unless it's for a big event. You know, for instance, with me, I found Avatar in 3D and IMAX to be one of the most amazing experiences I've ever seen. There are three more Avatar movies being made. Would I go to a movie theater to see Avatar in 3D? I'm actually, you bet I would, you bet I would. But I think a lot of people right now, because of how great the drama is on television, Netflix, Um, Amazon, HBO showtime are making such terrific movies that people are just not feeling the need to go to theaters. And what, what supported theaters for forever was the 18 to 29 year olds who had to get out of the house. Well, they don't have the movie going habit. They don't anymore. They'll go to events, but it's not like, well, it's Friday night. Let's go to the movies. And I, I'm not sure the movie business in the theaters is really going to come back. In, in the foreword to the book that I wrote in 2011, I actually had a scenario where there was a young, a young woman talking to her parents uh, and saying, gee, what was it like when they used to make new movies? Because they don't do that anymore. And I said that in 2024. Uh, that may or may not be the case, but it may be. It may be. We don't know at this point yet how that will work. And certainly the studios don't know. A lot of the theater chains are closing down. Uh, They were hoping that the end of this year would be a boon for them because, you know, the holidays are always a big season and there's always big tentpole movies that are released. But all of those movies that were going to come out at the end of the year have now been pushed to 2021. And uh, the Regal Cinema chain has basically closed all of its theaters in the United States, and they're one of the biggest ones. So that's a long-winded answer to say, I don't really know, but I'm not sure they will come back in the form that they
2: were before. Wow. What an amazing legacy you have in this. It's just absolutely incredible. And again, I don't, that's not an accident.
1: Right. You know, I, right. I, I, I came here to, to be a filmmaker that's what that I came here to be a filmmaker second and to reconnect with Lauren first. It took me 57 years to find Lauren. Uh, I got into the film industry when I was 30. So I was around that business. Um, as I said, from birth and I have loved it, but you know, these things never last forever and I'm not sure the movie theaters the way they were before will ever come back.
2: Wow, that is truly amazing to try to get your head around. Majana?
0: Well, I have just so enjoyed the book and the conversation with you and have, I feel like I could just just sit and listen and visit with you for hours and share experiences and delve into the ifs, ands, and buts about it all. (laughs) There's so many. Well,
1: thank you. I've enjoyed this tremendously, too. You guys made it very easy for me. I'm very flattered that the two of you decided to do this together and, Um, I've really enjoyed it too. And uh, to anyone who's listening, just remember that no matter what happens to you in your life, there, there, there's always hope that can be found. You can always find hope somewhere. You can always find love somewhere. You can have that hope for yourself and that dream for yourself. I know because I, I had been through two very unsuccessful marriages before I met Lauren, Lauren had been through two very unsuccessful marriages. We had both decided we were never going to get married again, um, that we were never, I, I had thought, you know, I don't really care if I ever date again. And then I met Lauren and that changed everything. Uh, and again, and she said this on her podcast, I, I don't know if you guys know Allison Dubois, but uh, Alison was, do you, do you ever remember the TV series medium? that Patricia Arquette st- starred in for many years. If you don't, it was about Alison's life uh, as a profiler and as a medium. And when she read our book, and we talked for the first time, she said, I I laughed when you said in your book that you have found, you found love and you will never, ever, ever have another romantic relationship in your life. (laughs) And she said that is something that only soulmates say and only soulmates know because once you find that person, there can be no other person other than that person. And I've had that in my life. Uh, physically, I have it with me in every way other than physical. And, you know, right now, I look forward to that moment when (laughs) a friend of mine said, Stephen, when the time comes for you to go through the veil, you know, Lauren, I know, Lauren, Lauren will be right there with you, grabbing you and saying, it's about time. Let's go.
0: (laughs) Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for giving us a glimpse into the power of your eternal love and how it empowered you and Lauren to communicate from opposite sides of the veil. Beautiful story.
1: No, Thank you both. Thank you both. I appreciate it very much, and uh, I wish you both well.
0: I sure hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. I suggest you check out Stephen and Lauren's book, What Dreams Have Come, Loving Through the Veil. It is available exclusively on Amazon in both paperback and Kindle version. And check out the website, whatdreamshavecome.com. Stephen talks about some of the same topics we've discussed in previous podcasts, and it's just kind of cool to hear how these experiences played out for them. As always, thank you so much for joining us, and you can get a hold of Thomas and myself at soulfoodtalks.com. All of our freebies are listed on there, as well as Thomas's astrology uh, sessions, and all of the sessions available for me as well. We would love to meet you. We do that on Zoom and send you a recording. And love to hear from you via email, majana at lifeafterliferadio.com. I hope to see you soon. And until then, namaste.